so I had a conversation a while back with a pastor, and we were having a discussion about how unique the Bible is and the way which it doles out wisdom. Uh, because if you think about it, when it comes to the Bible, when we come to it with questions about the things that we're going through, rarely do we get what we might call a direct answer. You ever thought about this? Instead, the Bible seems to come to us in principles or ideas, and it expects us to work out the details. I'm regularly reminded that like 90% of the problems that I typically face in life, especially the big ones, are not answered directly in Scripture. Who should I marry? What career should I choose? How many children should we have? Where should they go to school? When should I retire? I mean, this pastor I was talking to said that one of the problems that people often has is, is that they're treating the Bible as if it's like a, a big answer book. You'll find people getting into disagreements over which path to take, over what's the best place to go. And invariably, they start doing something that we might call proof texting. Proof texting is where you pull a Bible verse out that really, in order to demonstrate your point, that has absolutely nothing to do with the context in which that verse originally was found. Not only that, the people that you're talking to often feel very manipulated during conversations like that because intuitively they know that you're not taking their questions seriously. You just dropped a verse on me. So here's the big point. The Bible is not, do we believe, an answer book. The Bible is actually a wisdom book. You don't get a lot of list of to-dos in the Bible that are doled out as a surefire four-step program to have a better life. Instead, what the Bible does is it comes to us in stories, in these broad principles that it expects that you and I are going to have to work through on our own. In other words, we have to pray through it, that we'll have to connect with each other and depend on the Holy Spirit for guidance about it. Now, the reason why this is so relevant for us today is because we've been going through this study in the book of Acts that we've entitled, Jesus Continued. And we want to know how it is that we, in the best wisdom, are supposed to engage in mission in this church and in our community. And in some ways, we actually realize that we've got to do that at a time when Jesus himself is not physically present. So in Acts chapter 15, we get what honestly is a remarkable test case for how to, to navigate, as it were, the stress that comes into a church when disagreements rise up. And it is stressful. But before we start that, there's a couple things we can mention. The first is this. Believe me, there is no option in the book of Acts not to have disagreements. They're inevitable. <laughs> you know, invariably, when conversations about controversy arise in churches, there'll be someone who will say something to the effect of, man, I wish that we could just get rid of all this arguing and, and go back to that peaceful New Testament church. <laughs> that church doesn't exist, right? It never existed. The point is, if anything good is going to happen to a sinful people, it almost certainly is not going to happen without resistance, without anxiety, without confusion, lack of clarity, but especially a need for humility. But what makes these seasons often so complicated is they, they always fall upon two different kinds of people, don't they? You've got some people who for some reason just seem to love controversy. They love it. And for some reason they always find it <laughs> without the realization that maybe you're the one that's causing it. There's other people, though, who actually fear controversy and division so badly that they walk away from it and are afraid of it and can keep churches in bad patterns 
for decades. In other words, when you seek the Bible for wisdom, it doesn't so much talk, try to take you out and away from controversy as it teaches you how to navigate through it, hopefully arriving at, arriving at a godly result on the other side. And so through this, through this Bible's pattern, though, the way in which we see these New Testament believers dealing with controversy, you can see a pattern that is good for us, that, we can, that is commended to us as we navigate our own controversies, as it's inevitably going to come. So Acts 15, I want to see three principles throughout this particular beginning that go like this. First of all, don't compromise on the gospel. Secondly, compromise wherever you can. But then thirdly, stay connected to Jesus' church. See if I can unfold this as we go in. First of all, don't compromise on the gospel. First of all, set the stage here. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. And oh, the tales that they tell about all these wonderful ways about God's providing for them. And all of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, are coming in and converting to Christianity. Paul's whole first sermon was this demonstration from the Old Testament that the Gentiles were supposed to be included in the people of God. And he quoted all those sources to do so. Now, none of that was necessarily controversial. What was controversial was the realization that when Paul had talked about these Gentile Christians becoming Christians, he didn't mean what the Jewish Christians thought that he meant. Because the Jewish Christian leaders of that time understood that the Gentiles, yes, were welcome to come into the church, but it was going to be on their terms. In other words, these new converts were going to have to take on what had become these, these cultural identifiers that Jewish people lived by. Mind you, these early Gentiles were what we called the God-fears. They were used to kind of looking Jewish to some certain extent. But when Paul returns from this big journey, he finds that there are some men who have come down from Jerusalem. By the way, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. Why did they come down? Well, Jerusalem is up on a hill. Everything is down from Jerusalem for whatever that's worth. He comes down and all of a sudden there's visitors from the mother church back in Jerusalem who are coming up to Antioch in order to set those liberals straight up there. Because we hear that they're doing something that we don't like. And in order to sort of fully realize, they're saying, what it means to be the people of God, you have to take on these Jewish cultural norms. They were things like circumcision. That's necessary to be truly Jewish. Uh, they were things like these dietary food laws, incredibly specific. And of course, there were things like these ceremonial feast days. Paul, they found, wasn't introducing these Gentile converts to any of them. What is going on? As a matter of fact, he was saying that all they needed to do was be baptized. Can you imagine such a thing? And so, verse 2, you have this great verse that describes the debates as being no small dissension that had risen up. What did that mean? It means that things got ugly, right? People said things to each other. There were accusations and compromises were being sought and sought and rejected until finally they just reached an impasse. There was nothing they could do. And so they decided that they would bring in an outside authority. Now look, notice how they handled this. This is key. They call a council. People presented their arguments. And at the end of that time, Peter stood up and gives us this amazing final ruling in verses 7 through 11. And look how he unpacks his argument. Honestly, what Peter gives us is a beautiful summary of the gospel. Look at this. Verse 7, he basically says that God has always had a vision for expanding his people 
across racial and cultural boundaries. That's always been the plan. And then in verse 8 and 9, he says, these people were granted the exact same Holy Spirit that you received at Pentecost. But then in verse 10, you get the crux of the argument. When he basically says, look, why are you putting God to the test by putting a yoke, the big heavy yoke that they would use in farming, on the neck of disciples that neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear? Therefore, he concludes his argument by saying, we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just like they will. Now look, this is an absolutely beautiful uh, unpacking of how Peter gives us what the essence of the gospel is, really in those last two verses. The yoke, this heavy weight that, Paul, that Peter's talking about, that's nothing more than the burden of the law of Moses. Peter's standing up and saying, look, we've been at this for quite some time. And the only thing that we have from our efforts to sort of better ourselves and try to do better next time is, number one, we incessantly complain to each other in the wilderness and to God. Then we turned around and diminished our witness we were supposed to be to the world by becoming exactly like what the Egyptians were like. Oh, by the way, then we were carried off into exile and lost our entire national identity. You see what Peter's doing? He's sort of doing an argument where he's trying to say, look, look at your cultural history. Do the math. How's it working out for you? How are you doing thus far? And he's saying, we've been down this road before. We've been trying to live by these standards, but all it's doing is making us miserable. And so what Peter starts to unpack is, is that religious people are oftentimes the most frustrated because they're trying to obey better. And Peter's saying, look, just do a quick survey. Don't be proud of your history. It's a failure that you've got behind you. Now, that was a hard pill to swallow for these people, but it was necessary to salvation, was it not? That humility? Look, here's the point. Peter's saying God's law is too much for you to bear. But one of the main reasons for giving the law in the first place was to show you that you couldn't keep it. Definitely in the list. But of course, in verse 11, you see his conclusion. You will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. What's Peter saying? He's saying the only reason you're going to be right with God at all is if he initiates it by his grace. That's it. And the main way, this is key, we're gonna, don't, don't miss this one. The main way you will know if you got that grace and that it's not on the basis of merit will be because you'll see the gospel is for all kinds of people, not just your tribe, not just your race. That's why he ends it by saying, just as they will. Look, th this is the point. This is the only thing worth arguing over. People have differed in the history of the church, and we have divided over lots of things, over baptism. We have over miraculous manifestations of tongues in worship, uh, healing and miracles. We've talked about Christian liberty, uh, use of alcohol, how, how people govern the church, how much power goes to whom. And what we're saying is, is that you can have degrees of differences with those kinds of things and still be in the realm of Christianity. But what Peter and Paul are saying is, but when it comes to the gospel, you cannot have a different view that's just close. Any other gospel is actually no gospel. You get a great example of this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7 
When Paul is talking about a group of people, almost certainly we believe in Galatians 1, Paul's talking about this circumstance in Acts 15. And he says there are those who have come who are trying, he says in verse 7, to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now that Greek word in Galatians 1, 7, pervert, literally can be translated to reverse, to turn inside out. He's saying when you monkey with the gospel... You mess with the essence of Christianity. There's not a spectrum here. There's no way to be a little bit off when it comes to this. How can that be? Well, look at that word reverse. Because, and I've said this before, the gospel is all about a certain order. This is the point. Here's the question. Is the way life works that you do whatever you can You clean up whatever manageable parts of your life that you can in obedience to God's word. And on the basis of that effort, you therefore come and you realize that God accepts you on the basis of that. Is that the case? Or have you despaired of your ability to actually produce anything good that might be commendable to God? And by his sheer and unmerited grace, he places his grace upon you. And on the basis of that, you seek to live a different kind of life. Which is it? Because the first one is no gospel at all. It's not even in the realm of Christianity. Is, this is it. Do we, uh, do we do something before God and therefore he owes us something? Or can we do nothing before God and he accepts us on the measure of his grace and therefore we seek to live a good life? Which is it? Because there's no alternatives. There's no middle between those two things. It's a reversal. It's to turn the gospel inside out. And I don't think that there's a message that sort of southern religious Christians imagine. I, Tim Keller was the one who first directed me to a book that we started working on for years afterwards called uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal by Richard Loveless. And Loveless does a very, very deep dive on typical religious systems and how real revival comes in about it. And what he says is oftentimes it can be very hard for people who have cultural Christianity kind of caked on them. Like, you know, people in the South. Listen to this quote, what he says. is He says, religious people will often draw their assurance of acceptance from God. Stop there. They're drawing their assurance. How do I know that God and I are in good stead today? How can I be assured of that? Loveless says they often draw that acceptance from, number one, their sincerity. Well, I mean, I'm being sincere. Like, I really want him to save me. I hope he will. Number two, they do so from their past experience of conversion. Well, you know, less when I was 13, I answered the, the, the altar call when I was on a youth recruit retreat. That's why I know that I'm accepted by God. Number three, their most re- recent religious performance. <laughs> How did I do this week? You ever had your assurance go up and down sitting in church, even by a little quick survey of how you did that week? Fourthly, by the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. (laughs) In other words, when was the last time I did something where I just didn't care, I knew it was wrong, I just did it? Is that how your assurance goes up and down? Listen to what he says. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Brace yourselves. 
much less secure than non-Christians, by the way, because of the constant bulletins that they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they're supposed to have. But how that insecurity shows itself is oftentimes in their pride. Isn't that fascinating? In their fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness. And number three, of their defensive criticism of others. Listen to this. He says, therefore, they come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. How about that for a little psychologizing on Sunday morning? He says, they cling desperately to legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and all the other branches of the tree of sin, they grow out of that fundamental insecurity. What insecurity? Does God love me? And as long as it's based on something that you do that never gets arrested and all of the stuff that comes out of our lives and causes divisions is rooted in that. Like This is why this is worth fighting for. We can look and say, I know I'm a Christian because I have my quiet time, I read my Bible, I witness to somebody yesterday, I go to church all the time, and I dress differently, not like those people. If that's where my religion comes from, that's actually not a changed life, Peter and Paul are saying. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of insecurity and defensive criticism of others and Pharisaism and legalism and condemnation of anybody who's different from them. Why? Because there's not been a change on the inside. So yeah, that's worth fighting over. Don't compromise on the gospel. Don't reverse the gospel. Secondly, though, in the rest of this passage, we find that we need to compromise wherever we can. Now, what does that mean? Am I, am I contradicting myself? No. Because my guess is we've probably successfully triggered all the, all the people who love controversy out there. Yeah, you get them. Tell them what's right, Les. But not so fast. Because as soon as Peter gives his speech of clarity, James comes in with an amazing amount of wisdom. He says, look, everything that Peter just told you is true. The gospel cannot be perverted. But you know what? We've got a sticky situation here. Let's not make things worse by rubbing this in misguided believers' faces. And so he says, yes, of course, allow the Gentiles into full fellowship. But if you would just watch out for these four things that would be especially disgusting to a Jewish Christian, that would be an act of kindness on your part. He pulls out four things that we have in our text that actually come from Leviticus 17 and 18. They have things to do with sexual immorality. There's marriage warnings. There's also some, some, some food laws in there and clothing laws. In other words, what James is saying is, yes, you are correct. You are in the right. But let's not use our freedom in Christ to purposely make others mad. We all can make concessions on the things that honestly are just not a big deal. So a couple of applications before we go to the last point. Um, the first one is this. The gospel should be teaching us to get over our silly little cultural norms that are not essential to the gospel. And we're all guilty of this. All of us are guilty of this, of finding ourselves to get annoyed by the things that the Bible did not say are worth getting uh, arguing, arguing about. Uh, a number of years ago at our uh, at staff training we had for the campus ministry I was involved in, RUF, there was a guy by the name of Howard Brown, become something of a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, who was, a pastor, who was an African-American church planter uh, in Charlotte, still there as far as I know, with a white uh, associate pastor, his name was Giorgio. And Howard and Giorgio came to talk to us about race and about getting along on campus. 
And they were talking about how funny it was when they first started working together about how hard it was to go out to lunch together. Because when Giorgio, the white guy, said, uh, we'll meet it, uh, you know, for lunch, he meant 12 o'clock. That's what he meant by noon. Howard, on the other hand, when he heard noon, he meant somewhere between 11 and 2. And so he said they spent the first two years of their ministry sort of irritated each other because the white guy was looking at Howard thinking that he was absolutely rude and thoughtless. While Howard, on the other hand, was looking at, the, at Giorgio thinking that he was super high strung and really moody. Now here's my question. Who was right? Neither. Who cares? The point is, it was just what you grew up with. And so the gospel is trying to teach us to stop trying to turn the way in which I grew up as principles that are the only, honestly, that are only thinly represented in the Bible. And what we've got to realize, though, is how the gospel begins to work on our defensiveness. Look, it is insecurity that creates argumentativeness, is it not? But once I get settled on the question, once I know that what I believe is true, once I know that I'm not saved by anything when it comes to what I do, and I see that Jesus has set me free from these cultural norms that don't make a bit of difference, you ready for this? I am free to give up my freedom. Does that make sense? Because you can be defensive on both sides. The gospel makes it so I don't have to be defensive about any of my background. And here's the demonstrating the point. The very next chapter, in chapter 16, Paul actually has Timothy, his understudy, circumcised. What? Why would he do that? This is a guy who was fighting for this the whole time. Yes. But Paul is saying, you know what? I'm not going to put an offense in front of people just so I can have my way. Does that spirit describe us as a church? That's worth asking, don't you think? especially as we go to this final thing. Don't compromise on the gospel. Compromise wherever you can. But thirdly and finally, stay connected to Jesus' church. Like I think this is some very transformational stuff. But zoom out to the 30,000-foot view for a second and think about this process. Here are a group of well-meaning Christians who came into some inevitable conflict that dealt with fellow believers over a situation that was on the one hand theological but also was a bit of philosophy of ministry. And when they couldn't get to an agreement, they didn't just split the church in Antioch and go their separate ways. What did they do? They appealed to a higher court. That's what they did. And once they made that appeal, the higher court rendered a decision. Now, the reason why that's interesting is, is because remember, these were apostles and they knew it. They were very self-aware of the fact that their authority was very unique and also supernatural. That's why they're doing all these miracles all the time. And yet, in this controversy, rather than render a supernatural, thus says the Lord, we're apostles, here's the decision, they did the hard work of working through it all. That's what they did. Why am I going into this? Well, look, there's a lot of people that will ask me why it is that I'm a Presbyterian. I didn't grow up this way, by the way. (laughs) They made me this way. I'm just kidding. Um, But somewhere in my answer, I usually try to appeal to Acts chapter 15. Because you might not be aware of it, but Christ Pres is a part of a larger denominational body that we call the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA for short. We're not a Lone Ranger church. And of course, that means a lot of things. But for our purposes today, what it means for us is, is that you as a member of this church always have a court of appeal. That's what it means. 
Look, think of it in terms of the gospel. You've heard me sort of summarize the gospel in this way. The gospel says, number one, that you are more sinful and wretched and depraved than you could possibly imagine. But secondly, that you are more loved and more forgiven and more treasured in Christ than you could ever dare dream. Now, the first part of that about us being sinners is one of those things that means that when we mess up, when we, when we show how infallible we are, we have this structure of courts of appeal that can come in and protect us from each other. Look, the knowledge of our sin tells us we need a church. And we need a church that's more than just local, that's more than just me and my experience, because otherwise we're going to be torn apart. Jesus is what keeps us whole. He's what keeps our relationships from shattering. He's the one who curbs off these uglier parts of our nature. But do you know how he does that? Here, in a church, we are the living arm of his protective hand to keep us from hurting ourselves. And we abandon this body to our detriment when it comes up. I was talking with some campus ministers a while back about the story that happened in a church um, in another state where there was a young lady from the youth group who had, who had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And very reluctantly, she went to go meet with the pastor and with the session with the elders. And she would say years after the fact that while she had trouble seeing it in the meantime, she looked back and she goes, that was remarkably helpful. And one of my campus minister friends asked her, like, what was helpful about it? And she said, I'll never forget the week or two after I met with them what one of the elders got up in front of the congregation and said. And he said, pray tell, what did he say? She said, I remember him standing up and saying something to the effect of saying, look, we want to love and protect and look out for a daughter of our church and her unborn child. That's our purpose here. But to avoid this becoming a topic of gossip, every one of you need to understand that we as a session are on her side. And we are not going to let this become a topic of community scandal under our watch. And she said, that was a blessing to me to have that in my life. Now, look, I'm not commending a policy. I'm not saying that the best way to deal with all controversies is to air it out in front of everybody. I'm just saying that's an example where the structure of a church, a group of men that God sort of saw, elders, presbyteroses, we're in a place to come bring healing and comfort. Because here's the deal. They're not just there to remind you of that first part of the gospel about being sinful and wretched and depraved. But, oh, they are still there to say, you are also loved and accepted and adored in Christ. In other words, in the context of an actual church with, with, with leaders and with tears of appeal, you have the hope not only of being sort of helped when I sort of teeter off to the side, but you have the place to be built up, to be encouraged. Look, I know that for many of us, we can feel in times of life, I'm looking and searching for where Jesus is. How do I find him? Why won't you speak to me? The tragedy is we're looking in places where he never said he would be. Because <laughs> you know where he said he would be? Among his people. Here in the messiness that is the church, and elders that sometimes make wrong decisions, and leadership that oftentimes struggles to know what to do best. But as we all work together and we pray in dependence on the Holy Spirit, God is at work. 
I think that's the reason why the older people get. The people who stayed in Jesus' church would look and say, yeah, I'm not missing church. (laughs) I'm missing that place. That's life and health and peace to me. And it's the place where Jesus brings that to me. Somewhere in the church, we begin to see exactly what it means to live by the gospel and have that be the center thing. The other stuff, we're going to do our best not to fight about. But if we have to, we'll appeal to a higher court and see if they can help us. But regardless, this is the place where there's safety. And the prayer is that we would be just that kind of body to God's people and to Oxford. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you build that? Because we need your spirit to realize it. Father, even now, it's likely that there are some in this congregation who are just mad at each other. They're still upset over decisions that were made, over ideas that were brought up and maybe not paid attention to. And at every turn, it feels like there's a threat. We feel like we're at a loss. But we're not the have-nots. Lord Jesus, we are the ones that you have moved in in the gospel and saved by grace. And what that means is, is you've loved us just as much as you've loved the people with whom we disagree. So would you bring us together on those grounds? Make us to be a light in this community, yes, but a unified light. Because we've learned how to navigate controversy well. Would you do that by your spirit? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.